Welcome to the BNP Round Podcast. As always, this is your host, Brian, and thanks again for joining me. Wow, folks, we did it. 40 episodes, two episodes per week since January. That was the goal, and here we are, right on schedule. What a journey. It's been a wild ride, but it's not done yet, because you've yet to hear how the epic novel, The Teacher and the Tree Man, concludes. But not to worry. Today you are going to get chapters 19 and 20 of the book, then the epilogue, and then, for good measure, I even read the acknowledgments and the About the Author page. In most books, I'd say those aren't all that exciting, but I think I made these a bit more interesting and fun than such pages usually are. I'd like to think that if you've listened to previous episodes, or previous chapters of my book, you recognize that I'm a guy who likes to have a good laugh. That said, goodbyes can often be hard places to laugh about, though in rereading these chapters, I was really happy to see how much humor I put into them. And, considering the situation in the world as I record this from my house in Japan on Friday morning, June 5th, 2020, especially events in America, with protests covering the country for over a week now, well, I think some lightheartedness grounded in realism is something our world definitely can use more of. I'd like to think that's one thing this book has delivered, and definitely believe that this is the case about these final few chapters. Anyway, the book is extremely hefty this week. So, I will give you an intro that actually turned out to not be so brief, And then we're going to hear a song that is one of my favorites to listen to when I am happy and feeling good about myself, and which actually makes an appearance in the novel, way back in book two, when Lucas is driving home, high on ecstasy, and gets pulled over by what turned out to be a very reasonable cop. I bring that scene up because I'd like to say something about current events before we get to the episode. I've had a lifelong love-hate relationship with the police and authority figures. As this podcast has proven, I'm a freedom-loving person, and I don't jive well with people who abuse their power. Having said that, most of my personal run-ins with police have been fair. Then again, I am a white male who gets along with just about everybody, and, even when I do have confrontations with authority figures, I'm usually able to use enough charm and compassion to keep them from bringing the hammer down on me. Uh, Not always. I'm thinking of you, Mr. Blair, in 8th grade, who literally took me by my shirt collar and tossed me up against a locker and yelled in my face, Winchell, are you stealing school's pencil sharpener handles? Um, yes, sir. I'm winning the competition with my friends. I've gathered about 20, and my second place friend has only about 5. But please, don't scare the shit out of me like this, because 30 years later, I still feel scared when I retell this tale. I actually became friends with a local policeman who caught me and my pals doing various shenanigans around our suburban Washington town. He policed the even quieter burb next to the one I lived in. One night, shortly after Christmas, my brother, me, and two of my brother's friends went on a rampage finding houses that had Christmas lights on and unscrewing one bulb so as to turn the whole set off and then running off cackling into the night. Well... After a few hours of this, Officer John Cheeseman caught up with us. We were all scared, and, being the youngest, I didn't want to contradict my brother. But when the police asked us what happened, and I started blabbing about what we'd done, while my brother and his friends tried to lie about it, 
Well, Officer Cheeseman took me aside, got the full skinny, then took me back to my brother and his friends and said, I'm going to drive you guys back to your house and let you go without telling your parents. Now, the reason is, Lance, your little brother here told us the truth, so you can thank him. And remember that next time something like this happens. I learned a lesson that night, which would not serve me well a year later. The lesson was, if caught by the authorities, tell the truth. Now, a good authority figure will consider the context of every situation and should reward truth-telling, as Officer Cheeseman did. Well, Curtis Junior High School Principal Sally Walker was not such a good authority figure. At least she wasn't on the day before Christmas break in 8th grade to me. You see, I was with a group of friends before school, and suddenly a friend who I didn't know that well, but was more of a troublemaker than even I was, lit an M80 and tossed it into a garbage can, and kaboom! Ears ringing, we all ran off. Two periods later, I'm in the locker room getting dressed after PE class when I get the call. Winchell, Principal Walker's office, now! I knew what it was about. When I got there, she asked me what had happened and who I was with. So, remembering Officer Cheeseman's lesson, I told her. Yes, I ratted out my friends. That actually cost me my best friend, who turned into my worst enemy the rest of that year, and turned as many kids as he could against me. It turned into a lonely year. As if that wasn't bad enough, Mrs. Walker asked me if I had any firecrackers in my possession. Well, I did. You see, before the M80 incident, a friend who was and remains a very funny practical joker had given me a box of junk for Christmas, and one of the items was an old moldy firecracker without a fuse. So I took it out, and I showed her, and I told her the context I just told you. What did she do? She told me I was in violation of school rules for possessing a firecracker, and considering I was with a friend who'd lit one, without me even knowing he had one or was going to light it, she wanted to suspend me for three days, and she called my parents. Now, I'd gotten in serious trouble the year before for something I should have been in trouble for. But in that situation, the school gave me a three-day stay-home suspension. And it turned out to be an awesome vacation, as it was a rare, warm April week. And with both of my parents working, I spent the days biking around my neighborhood and having a blast. So, when Mrs. Walker threatened to suspend me, three days, my parents said, No, not this time. They were actually displeased with me being punished at all. And my dad even yelled at Mrs. Walker for lecturing me like I am a student and not an adult. But long story short, my sentence was reduced to one day in-house suspension, and it was awful. Why? Well, because not only was in-house suspension several hours of being forced to sit at a desk by oneself, no talking, indoors, a total drag for a chatty guy like me who likes to move around and go outside, but it was the first day after winter break, and it just so happened to be my birthday. Yes, I was kind of mad at my parents about that. Anyway, to finish up, back to Officer Cheeseman. A few years later in high school, my friends had a game called House Hoop. We'd get into my 1976 Vita van, the fire truck as we called it because of its red and white paint job, and we'd drive around the suburbs looking for outdoor basketball hoops on houses. We'd pull in, leave the engine running, and all get out of the van with our individual basketballs. And the rule was, 
you had to be quiet until you made a basket. Then you could make as much noise as possible and try to get your friends in trouble. A relatively harmless game, and we usually played on Fridays or Saturdays between 8 and 11 p.m., so not too late. But, well, eventually Officer Cheeseman caught up to us. Not you again, Brian, he said to me, shaking his head, but smiling. I apologized and explained what we were up to. He took me aside, put his hand on my shoulder, and said, Brian, that actually sounds like a pretty fun game, but this is a really quiet neighborhood with lots of older people. So can you guys just go back to your neighborhood and play over there? Sure thing. Now, I've had a lot more interactions with police and or security guards and such over the years. But the point here is I wanted to highlight some positive interactions I had and one negative one. Before I get to my bigger point, which is this. Since living in Los Angeles in the 1990s, during the Rodney King riots and the O.J. Simpson trial, and learning about the sordid and yes, racist history of the Los Angeles Police Department. I've had some very deep concerns about the way the American justice system is two-tiered. How a white guy like me gets kid glove treatment, usually, but how a person of color does not, usually. So I'm in full support of the protests. Note, protests, not looters, though I'm not going to spend any time condemning them beyond that. And I'm praying that 2020 will be the year where major reforms are made to the U.S. criminal justice system. I fully support police who behave as Officer Cheeseman has, a man who cared about the citizens he was protecting and took into context those criminals he confronted. We do need police, I believe, because there are people who do shitty things, but we need to hold them to a high standard. This also means giving them training in how to deflate situations, and so much more. Things that the U.S. has, in large part, shied away from over the years, as it has focused on a more militarized police force and response. Okay, that's more than enough for what I thought would be just an intro, but I couldn't let this episode go by without one more story, and well, this moment is too important not to address it. Getting back to the episode, the song you will hear is Baby, I'm a Star from Prince and the Revolution off probably my favorite pop rock album of all time, Purple Rain. There's not a bad song on it, and I played it to death when it came out in summer of 1984 and all the way into summer 1985. And then, after the song, two very hefty chapters of the book and the acknowledgments and the about the author, which totals well over an hour of content. What, you didn't really think an 80-chapter novel of over 225,000 words when most novels were between 75 and 100,000 words was going to end with short chapters, did you? If so, shame on you. In all seriousness, I've had a lot of fun reading this book into the world, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I feel a tinge of sadness as I get to the end, but I have some great news. That is, I am currently beginning to work on book two of the series which I can also announce will be a four-part series called The Elements Series, as each book will focus on one of the elements, earth, water, air, and fire. When I wrote The Teacher and the Tree Man, I had no idea I would turn it into a series, so the book is meant to stand alone. That said, upon much consideration about where to take my writing career, I decided I was going to rework the start of a new novel that I'd written back in 2011 and 2012, and keep some of our favorite characters from Book 1, while expanding the tale to Japan. Book 2 will be the water element, and will take place, most likely, near the ocean. 
I've got some research to do, but the gist is that the book takes place both in Japan and in the online world. And it starts around the time of the Great Tohoku Earthquake and Fukushima nuclear plant meltdown in March 2011, and ends in October 2019, with the arrival of Typhoon Hagibis. A lot will go into the meat of the book, but I am very excited about this idea. Second, I'll continue to write Medium blog posts, which I'll post when I feel the urge to do so. I respect and like Medium as a platform, but so far haven't utilized its potential enough. Third, I'll continue to write short stories, poems, songs, etc., and in fact have a book of short stories with the theme of, you guessed it, freedom, coming out before the end of the year. And last, the podcasts are not finished, folks. No, I've already got some folks wanting to help me with the podcast I am calling Your Information Diet, in which we'll be focused on questions around what information do we take in, what do we ignore, what resonates, how should we share information. That podcast may be next up in terms of production time. I won't put it up for at least another week or two. In addition, there are three more podcasts I want to work on as part of the Mercury Media Network. They are the Left Hand Monkey Wrench podcast, which will be cultural criticism, focusing on books and music, but also TV shows, movies, etc. A Woo Woo Personal Growth podcast, which will tap into my knowledge of and understanding of things like integral theory, MBTI personality theory, psychology, and astrology, in addition to other methods. And next, a podcast about politics and current events. To be honest, I am still thinking on all these, but I promise to release bonus episodes on this podcast feed when I have more concrete announcements to make. And last, I'll be releasing The Teacher and the Tree Man all by itself as a podcast, with no podcast banter around it sometime in the next few weeks. Oh, and again, if you are interested in reading the book, it's still a big-time bargain at just $4.99, But on June 11th or thereabouts, I'll be raising the price to $9.99. So, if you are thinking about buying it, strike now while the deal is on. Okay, folks, this was the longest intro of the podcast, but hey, why not be long? That's part of what this podcast is all about. So, there was some business to get to, and I'm glad you were able to stick with it. And now, for the time being, thanks again for listening to this show over this last few months. And, as always... Enjoy the show.
Chapter 19. Making Amends, Coming Clean When the phone call ended almost two hours later, Sylvanus really had told Rhodes everything about the cause of his meltdown, his discussions with Lucas about whether he wanted to be president, about their understanding that he likely had no chance to win, about the day at the beach when he'd confronted his anger, about the NDE, and, of course, about how he saw the real shooter. But it was when Sylvanus told Rhodes he wanted to go public about using psychedelics to get out of the tree that Rhodes had dropped his reporter role and counseled Sylvanus that perhaps now wasn't the best time to reveal that. I appreciate your advice, Randy, Sylvanus said, so I hope you won't be too upset when I don't follow it. Why not? Because I've learned some things since I got out of the tree, Sylvanus said. One is that when we are honest and open, we feel more true to ourselves. But aren't you worried that most people won't see it that way? Rhodes asked. Sometimes I think we spend too much time worrying about how others perceive us, Sylvanus said. What really matters, I think, is accepting ourselves, no matter what others might think of us. I see your point, Rhodes said. But if people don't take you seriously, won't your effectiveness as a messenger for nature be diminished? For some people, I am sure that will be the case, Sylvanus said. But for others, maybe they will recognize my integrity and be even more inclined to listen to me. Well, Rhodes said, you make some good points, and I can see that despite my reservations, you're convinced this is the route you want to take, so I'll help you. Good, Sylvanus said. And Randy, thanks. For everything. I couldn't have asked for more fair coverage. It's been my pleasure, Rhodes said. And I suppose I should be the one thanking you, since your story has been the launching pad for my career. I'm glad it worked out for you, Sylvanus said. Just keep at it, okay? The world needs more reporters like you. Thanks, Rhodes said. Now, I've got to get going. I'll talk to you again soon, I hope. And with that, the conversation ended, and Rhodes brewed a pot of coffee and stayed up into the early hours of the next morning, writing an article he tentatively titled, the truth, and nothing but the truth, about Sylvanus Douglas. Around 5 a.m., he sent the file to his editor at Mercury Magazine and asked her to read it ASAP, because it had timely news information and he hoped they could publish it soon. When he finally went to bed, Rhodes felt elated. This was going to be the article that fully placed him on the map. Before drifting off to sleep, he thanked the universe for connecting him with Larry Sherry on a starry desert night in 2001 in Arizona. Life had a fascinating way of working out. Then again, it also had an aggravating way of putting up roadblocks. He'd only slept a few hours, too excited by the article. So instead of his usual morning routine, he went straight to his computer to check for an email from his editor. There it was! He opened it. Randy, sorry but we can't go with this. Call me when you receive this, and we'll talk about it. Sharon. What the fuck? He thought. No reason? Not even a brief one? When he called her, he was given several reasons. We need solid evidence and some corroboration before we go accusing the LAPD of shooting Mr. Douglas. The drug history seems irrelevant for a current events piece. There's too much of you in the story. And on and on. The thing was... As Sharon had listed these reasons, Rhodes got the feeling that the editor didn't fully believe them, that she was just saying them to him so that he'd end up discouraged. In short, Rhodes smelled a rat. So just before noon that Wednesday, 
He called Sylvanus back. Miller, he told Sylvanus. It's got to be Miller. Sylvanus didn't need to be convinced. He thanked Randy for his hard work and said he'd get back to him shortly. I don't know what you're talking about, Miller said. You should know that I'm totally hands-off with the content of my news outlets. Are you sure you're feeling all right? I'm fine, Mike, Sylvanus said. Don't act like I'm the first person to accuse you of meddling with content. But those accusations have all been false, Sylvanus. Even if that is the case, Sylvanus said, you can solve this problem with a simple phone call to Sharon to tell her to run the story. Well, aren't you a hypocrite, Miller said. You accuse me of interfering with editorial content, and then you say the solution is for me to mess with the content. If my suspicions are correct, Sylvanus said, you put a stop to this article this morning. I'm asking you to overturn that command and set things right. Well, your suspicions are wrong, Miller said. I have never messed with content and never will. If Sharon rejected the piece, that decision was hers and hers alone. Sorry, but I can't believe you, Sylvanus said. Sylvanus, Miller said, if you're hell-bent on destroying your public reputation, you'll have to do it without my help. Before Sylvanus could tell Miller that the comments seemed to imply Miller's guilt, he heard the phone click dead. Crap, he thought, and began to call Rhodes back. There are other options, Sylvanus said. It won't make the same splash as the original plan, but right now we've got enough media attention on me that we can use my blog to publish the story. In full. Sounds good, Rhodes said. What I want you to do, Sylvanus said, is call Lucas and get him the story. I'll get it to him ASAP, Rhodes said. There's no great rush. Why not? Because we're not going to put it on the blog until tomorrow, around noon, Sylvanus said. Any reason why you want to wait that long? Rhodes asked. Yeah, Sylvanus said. I've got to make amends to someone. Thomas Friedman speaking, came the voice through the phone. Yes, Mr. Friedman, this is Sylvanus Douglas. Mr. Douglas? Yes, Sylvanus said, considering his words. I owe you a serious apology for my behavior last week in San Francisco. I appreciate that, Friedman said. But I don't think my words are enough, Sylvanus said. So there's something else I want to offer you. What's that? A scoop, Sylvanus said. About? I'm withdrawing as a candidate for president, Sylvanus said. Are you serious? Considering the recent polls... I know, Sylvanus said. But I've been a man of many surprises... So why break from the script, right? True, Friedman said. But don't you worry you'll be disappointing your supporters? No matter what I do, somebody's going to be disappointed, Sylvanus said. What's that line? You can please some of the people some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time? That's funny, Friedman said. I always thought it was fool the people, not please. Maybe you're right, Sylvanus said. I just like to quote Bob Marley whenever I can. Friedman laughed. Bob Marley? Did he say that? I'm pretty sure the original quote comes from Abraham Lincoln. Sylvanus laughed. You learn something new every day, so long as you keep your ears and mind open. More Marley? Nah, Sylvanus said. That's straight up Sylvanus Douglas, and you can quote me on that. Friedman laughed again. You sound a lot more at ease than you were last week. Yes, Sylvanus said. I am. A visit to the afterlife can change a person's perspective, to say the least. I was wondering, Friedman said, if it might be a result of getting out of the presidential race. 
Definitely that, too, Sylvanus said. To be perfectly honest, and by the way, this is all on the record. I never expected to win in the first place. You didn't? Friedman asked. Then why did you run? I was running to help do my part to bring about a shift in consciousness, Sylvanus said. What kind of shift? Friedman asked. A shift to a broader, more holistic understanding of who we really are. Where we would deeply feel ourselves as connected to the world around us is not separate from it. To start seeing the me in you, the me in the trees, the rivers, the mountains, the animals, and, importantly, the me in enemies. It sounds like your prescription for our troubles is more about changing our inner world than changing the world outside of us, Friedman asked. From one perspective, you're right, Sylvanus said. But I'd point out that, again, the two are connected. What we see in the outer world is, in many ways, a projection of our inner world. But how do we make that change? Friedman asked. In no way do I contend that I have all the answers, Sylvanus said. But if our economic system is based on the idea of dominating nature, what we are doing is waging war with ourselves. So how do we stop that war? I suggest that one of the best methods is to spend more time in nature, reconnecting to it. And when I say in nature, of course, going to the outdoors is great, but it also means just turning off the modern distractions of technology and going to a quiet room in one's house and entering one's inner nature. What happens if we don't make these changes? If we don't, we very well could end up wrecking our environment beyond repair. Sylvanus said, and then we'd all be in poverty, including the super-rich. There are some voices out there arguing that, Friedman said. Yeah, I am certainly not alone, and the good news is, despite forces in our culture which reject this change in consciousness, more and more people, especially our younger people, are experiencing this shift, Sylvanus said. So, you suspect this shift is already taking place? Friedman asked. Absolutely, Sylvanus said. Before I let you go, there's one more thing I want to tell you for your story. Uh, what's that? Here, Sylvanus had to, again, consider his words. Much as a part of him wanted to get back at Miller, much as he wanted to paint the man in the bad light, he had to remember that no matter Miller's flaws and mistakes, the man had done a lot to help Sylvanus, and, at its base, his motivation to raise consciousness had been the same as Sylvanus's. So he said, Mike Miller made a mistake that I forgave him for in person. He got my campaign rolling by making up false poll results about my popularity. He recognizes now that this was a mistake, but I can understand why he did it. It's not easy getting people to consider voting for someone who is not a Republican or Democrat, let alone getting media coverage. There is this notion that to do so is to waste one's vote. If you ask me, the only wasted vote is voting for someone you don't believe in, such as voting for the lesser of two evils. Well, Friedman said, it's been fascinating talking with you, Mr. Douglas, but unless there is anything else, I'd like to talk things over with my editors and see if we can get this story in tomorrow's times. Okay, Sylvanus said, I also enjoyed our conversation, and I thank you for accepting my apology. I look forward to reading the Times tomorrow. He hung up the phone and wondered what Friedman would do with the interview. Yet, he knew it was out of his hands, 
and felt satisfied that he'd said what he wanted to say. I can't believe him, Miller said, throwing the times down on his desk. He's really got a lot of nerve. Friedman's column had been mostly complimentary, starting with a lead about the rarity of a public figure offering a sincere apology to a reporter, on the record no less. He also admitted he was going to miss Sylvanus's campaign, which could have made for the most exciting presidential campaign of his career. He ended the column by arguing directly to Sylvanus to keep fighting for the shift into ecological awareness, and when doing so, to display some of the lightheartedness he displayed in their interview. There was also a news story that detailed Sylvanus calling for an end to the campaign, and that confirmed that the polls had been faked. What it didn't include was Sylvanus's comment about forgiving Miller. So when Sylvanus answered Miller's phone call, he had to sit through a diatribe before he could even say, I'm sorry, Mike, but I forgave you, both in person on Tuesday and also in my comments to the Times. Unfortunately, that quote didn't run in Friedman's column or the news story. I'm sorry. Whatever, Miller said. As you said on Tuesday, it doesn't matter all that much now that you're giving up the battle. Mike, I'm not giving up altogether, Sylvanus said. I'm just not running for president. Anyway, look on the bright side. Consider all the money I'm going to save you now. I don't care about the money, Miller said. Don't you get that by now? I've been guided to a new mission in life, and making or saving money is not the focus of that mission. I'm sorry, Mike, Sylvanus said, wishing there was something more he could say. Never mind, Miller said. Look, if you're up to it, and if you're really serious about not giving up the battle, perhaps you'd like to go on Barry's show on Sunday night? Sort of as a way to draw this chapter in your story to an end, and to begin writing the next chapter. Well, Mike, Sylvanus said, I'm flattered by your generosity. But I think that this afternoon you should read my blog, and then get back to me if you still want me to go on Barry's show. What's going to be on your blog? Miller asked. Uh, sorry, Sylvanus said, but you'll just have to read it when it comes out. But don't worry. None of it is bad stuff about you. The Times covered all that. Oh, that's a relief, Miller said. Talk to you later, Sylvanus said. I hope. And so just afternoon that Thursday, Rose's tell-all about Sylvanus came out on Sylvanus's blog with a short disclaimer at the start that the article had been originally planned to run in Mercury magazine, but had been rejected by the editor, not Miller. The article had included the full details about how Lucas had given Sylvanus psilocybin mushrooms and then 5-MeO-DMT to bust him out of the tree, and how they'd had several reasons why they had withheld this information until now. One, Lucas was a schoolteacher at the time, and he feared he'd lose his job for, quote, dealing drugs, unquote. Two, they worried it would detract from Sylvanus's message by giving ammunition to his critics, who could say he was not of a sound mind and was just a, quote, drug addict, unquote, no matter that psychedelics were non-addictive and that he'd only taken them a few times. The article also said that at the time, Sylvanus had no idea the mushrooms were illegal. All he knew was that they helped him regain muscle memory, which helped him get out of the tree and they'd helped him remember his past. Thus, even if he knew they were illegal, he would have still used them, because they worked. And that, when he learned about drug history, especially psychedelic drugs, he felt the laws were unjust, cruel, and unnecessary, and that they existed not to keep people safe, but to keep the government safe. Because for many people, they had the effect of making one take a fresh look at things, 
to accept nothing at face value, and a government based on force and control certainly did not want its citizens thinking independently, questioning the basic assumptions of its validity, not to mention the culture itself. The last thing it said about that particular topic was that the whole conversation about drugs was another the culture needed to have. That America had more drug users than any country on the planet, and also more people behind bars, many for drug offenses, than any country. That the $40 billion spent every year fighting the so-called war on drugs was a colossal waste of taxpayer money. That the very language, such as grouping all mind-altering substances under the term drugs, without consideration of each drug's unique properties and effects, was an oversimplification and a mistake. And that to think that all human bodies reacted the same way to every drug flew in the face of the evidence, and thus, rather than granting governments the right to control what individuals could put in their bodies, we needed to give that right, that trust, to the individual, that each person should have sovereignty over their own body. As if that wasn't all enough, the article had two more bombshells. The first was Sylvanus's accusation that the police had caught the wrong person. He admitted that this was based on a vision in his NDE, but said the police had already acted on information from his NDE and verified it when they tracked down the killer of Jamie Perkins, so they had no excuse not to act here. Sylvanus also said that he recognized telling all of this was risky, but that he had nothing to hide. And neither did Lucas, apparently. For when Rhodes had contacted Lucas about putting the article on Sylvanus's blog, Lucas had convinced Rhodes to include Lucas's theory that perhaps the shooter was connected to the Democrats. It went into a long Lucas quote about how progressives and liberals needed to drop the blinders and recognize that the Democrats were just as beholden to the corporate agenda as the Republicans were. Only minor differences really separated the two. But the way the system and media worked, they accentuated those differences to convince the American people that they really have a choice every four years. Mark my words, Lucas concluded, Whoever comes after Bush, whether it's in 2004 or 2008, will be sold to the public as a messiah who is going to change the way Washington works. That sale will be quite a spectacle, because you need a spectacle to pull the wool over people's eyes. But when all is said and done and the odor of bullshit is cleared, things will just keep right on rolling along, leaving people to look for the next savior. Chapter 20 Wrapping up with raps and laughs. That Friday, Sylvanus was released from the hospital. They decided that they'd spend the weekend in California. They would spend Friday night at a beach house in Malibu that one of Larry's TV producer friends was letting them use. On Saturday, they'd head out to Pomona in the afternoon to meet Sylvanus's brother, George. Now that he didn't need to prove his age for a run at the presidency, they didn't need the DNA test. Instead, Sylvanus just wanted to meet his brother, and George seemed eager as well. Then, on Sunday, they would drive up the coast to San Francisco, where they'd drop Larry off, and Terry and Scarlett would fly back to Washington while Lucas and Sylvanus drove their car home. So after enjoying a seafood dinner in Santa Monica, they drove up the coast and settled in at the beach house for the night. The next morning, Lucas woke early and found Sylvanus already sitting on the balcony, drinking a coffee and looking out over the vast blue Pacific. It's beautiful, isn't it? Lucas said. Yeah, Sylvanus said. Lucas saw that Sylvanus had placed the Saturday editions of the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times on the coffee table. Been doing some reading? Lucas asked. 
I couldn't help myself, Sylvanus answered. Anything about you? Yes, Sylvanus said, especially in the L.A. Times. The police confirmed that they had already arrested the shooter based on their words. Real evidence, not hallucinations. Lucas laughed. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. No, Sylvanus said. You figured as much, even though I hoped you were wrong. One of these days, Lucas said, you'll learn to stop doubting me. Sylvanus laughed. <laughs> Never. What about the New York Times? Uh, not that much, to be honest, Sylvanus said. A small story about my accusation, my claims of having an NDE, and again, I quote, the former candidate's past drug use. Remember what I said about omission as a tool for controlling the conversation? Lucas asked. Of course, Sylvanus said. What the media doesn't report or talk about plays as much of a role in sophisticated censorship as anything else. Yeah, Lucas said, something like that. Anyway, Paul, Sylvanus said, it appears that everything is going according to plan. I'm now being castigated to the fringe world of drug-using conspiracy theorists. Does that bother you? Lucas asked. Nah, Sylvanus said, sipping on his coffee. I'm looking on the bright side. And that is? At least they'll stop trying to kill me, he said. Lucas laughed and drank some coffee. It's funny in a dark sort of way, Lucas said. And true. I think I remember the late Terence McKenna saying that the reason an outspoken dude like him wasn't taken out by the powers that be was because he was considered so fringe that he was not thought of as a threat. That if you present your so-called radical views with enough crazy twinkle in your eye, they'll leave you alone. It's kind of sad that it has to be that way, though, isn't it? Sylvanus said. I mean, people, especially the ones that consider themselves really patriotic, Love to say how much freedom of speech we have, and I suppose, compared with really totalitarian countries, we do. But it doesn't seem like it's as free as they say. No, it doesn't, Lucas said. But so long as that is the case, perhaps we do need to be mindful about when and where we choose to say things. Not to mention how we say them. Hard to believe I'm hearing that from you, Sylvanus said. An old dude like me can still learn, can't he? Lucas asked. Sure, Sylvanus said, but even though I can accept that your advice is practical, considering the current reality we live in, I still don't have to like following it. Yeah, that's true, Lucas said. I guess Miller's words about the shooter winning by me choosing to quit are sort of haunting me right now, Sylvanus said. You're having regrets? Not really regrets, because I don't feel like running for president was right for me, Sylvanus said. Why not? The system is too broken, Sylvanus said. And when I say system, I'm talking about the very big picture. A picture that includes assassins who, for whatever reason, are allowed to walk free while an innocent man suffers for the crime. It just seems like our world is filled with sick, violent people with powerful connections. People who are rewarded for their violence and madness. And I think if I tried to run, the next time, I might not be so lucky. Yes, there is truth in what you say, Lucas said. But there is some good news. Yes. A lot of these people are not as smart as they think they are, Lucas said. They are often blinded by their own hubris, unaware of their weaknesses. But we don't have to be like that. Larry stepped onto the balcony, took in a deep breath of ocean air, and handed Sylvanus a portable phone. What's this? Sylvanus asked. It's a phone, Sylvanus, Larry said. I know that, the tree man said laughing. Why are you giving it to me? 
because Mike Miller's on the other end, Larry said, and he doesn't sound too happy. I just want an explanation, Miller said. About? Why you sabotaged yourself. Why you not only derailed your political hopes, but likely your ability to be a spokesman for nature, Miller asked. That is still your goal, isn't it? I'm not sure, Sylvanus said. Mike, when I had my NDE, it changed my perspective. I realized that, in the end, a lot of this stuff doesn't matter. The environment doesn't matter? Miller asked. Are you really saying that? No, that's not what I'm saying, Sylvanus said. Look, it's not all that easy to put into words. And that's one reason why I'm not the man for the job. Job? What job? The job of being nature's spokesman, Sylvanus said. Mike, I know you had a powerful, visionary experience in South America. An experience that set you on a commendable path of working for ecological awareness and causes. I respect that, and want to do whatever I can to help you. However, I also had a powerful experience, and I came back from it convinced that the path of trying to save the world from itself by becoming president was not the right path for me. Then what is the right path? Miller asked. Can I admit that I'm not sure right now? Sylvanus answered. All I know is that my experience convinced me that what matters most in life, no matter our path, is how we treat people, how well we express love. That, and personal growth, a constant striving to become more and more ourselves with each passing day. Okay, Miller said, and his voice seemed to suggest he'd accepted that Sylvanus wasn't going to change his mind. So what are you going to do now? Well, I'm going to enjoy a few more days in lovely California with my family and friends, and then I'll head back to Washington and take it from there, Sylvanus said. And there's no way I can convince you to reconsider? To start your campaign again? I'm really sorry, Mike, Sylvanus said. That part of my life is over. Permanently. I just don't get it, Miller said. What? Why did I have that vision about seeking the voice for the voices, he asked. What was the point of all this? I wish I could answer that for you, Mike, Sylvanus said, but I can't. And I'm sorry things didn't work out as he'd expected or hoped. What's the saying? Life is what happens to you when you are busy making other plans? That sounds right, Miller said. Except life has really never been like that for me. I've usually been able to get what I wanted. I wonder something, Sylvanus said. What's that? I wonder if part of the reason it's worked like that for you was because your goal to make money was aligned with our cultural values, and you were playing along by the rules of our culture, Sylvanus said. And playing very well, I might add. But now, you are choosing a more difficult road that is sometimes at odds with our culture's goals. So it's only natural for things to not work out as well as they did before. It makes sense, I suppose, Miller said. Anyway, Mike, what do you want to do now? Sylvanus asked. To continue fighting the battle to save the Earth, he said. Maybe she doesn't need saving, Sylvanus said. At least not like we think. The point is, even those of us with noble causes need to constantly examine our motivations and our methods. Just because we have a righteous cause doesn't mean we are doing right by it. Fair point, Miller said. Anyway, Mike, I really hope this isn't goodbye, Sylvanus said. I'm hoping that once we both take a little time to figure out our next moves, I can still consider you an extremely dependable friend. Well, Miller said, considering I thought this would be our last conversation when I called you, I'm surprised I'm saying this, but yeah, I'll be around. 
You know how to reach me. Good enough, Sylvanus said. And Mike, if I can be so bold as to offer you my perspective on your situation, what I'd do if I was you? Go ahead. Take a step back. Do some soul searching, Sylvanus said. Trust that inner voice of yours. You may not understand it all the time, but one more thing I feel I learned from my NDE is that, at its core, this world is a beautiful and meaningful place, and the more we trust in that, the better off we'll be. Hearing you talk like that, Miller said, all but convinces me that your time in the public eye, your time helping others, is far from over. Anyway, I appreciate it, Sylvanus. You're welcome, Mike, Sylvanus said. Talk to you soon, I hope. Count on it. The Pomona Golden Acres Retirement Community was a run-down trailer park. So George Green's trailer, with its peeling, crusty yellow paint and tall weeds growing around its edges, fit right in. As did Green, who relied on a walker and moved slowly down the ramp from the front door to greet them. The little hair he had was snow white, and his skin was a pale yellowish hue, matching the trailer. Yet despite these conditions, the old man smiled warmly at Sylvanus, Lucas, and Larry, and the tree man remembered. That smile had made George a popular kid, and had been in frequent comfort to Sylvanus after Doris had died. Well, look at you, George said. All those times you were on TV, I convinced myself that technology was tricking me. But here you are, in the flesh. The two brothers shook hands, and Sylvanus struggled to find any words. Come on in and make yourselves at home, George said. It's not much, but I've brewed some coffee, and my sweet neighbor brought over some of her tasty peanut butter cookies to chow on. They all situated themselves inside the small trailer, and Sylvanus noticed that despite George's lack of mobility, it appeared he'd done a lot of work to clean his trailer up for their visit. Thanks for having us, George, Sylvanus said. Absolutely, his younger, yet older, brother said, putting a tray of large, soft peanut butter cookies on a coffee table that sat in the middle of the room. Help yourself while I prepare the coffee. The kitchen was within hearing distance of the living room, so as George readied the coffee, they began to talk. I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around this, Sylvanus said. If I can ask, what year were you born? 1926, George said. February 16th. And I was born in 1920, on May 5th, Sylvanus said. That's right, George said. And the last time I saw you was, I can't remember the exact date, but it was in the spring of 1941, April if I remember right. I was 15, and you didn't look all that much younger than you do now. Nobody said anything. I, on the other hand, well, I'll be lucky if I make it much further, George said, serving the coffee to his guests. If you don't mind me saying, Lucas said, you seem to be doing all right. Yeah, today I am, George said, but such days are more the exception than the rule. I've got lung cancer. Docs think if I'm lucky, I'll have another year or two. No more. I'm sorry, Sylvanus said. Yeah, well, George said, sipping his coffee. It's been a decent life, all things considered. Can I ask you what you did with yourself? Sylvanus asked. After college, I sold real estate and did real well, George said. So, you're probably wondering how I ended up here. Long story short, I lost faith. Faith? In what? 
Everything, George said. Ah, I don't want to sound like I'm whining. We all have crap to get through, but I do sometimes feel I got more than my fair share. Like what? Sylvanus asked. That is, if you don't mind talking about it. Nah, I don't, George said. I, I mean, I usually don't talk or even think about these things anymore. But as a man approaches his end, it gets harder not to. And, if I can be frank, uh, one of the reasons I think I wanted to see you, Luke, was to have someone to talk to about this. Sylvanus was about to tell his brother that he went by Sylvanus, but he caught himself. To George, he was Luke, and Luke wasn't some name that he'd gone by just to get a job. It really was his name. Anyway, George continued, first, uh, of course, you, um, died. Uh, that was hard on all of us, especially Dad. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, here you are, George said. Then we moved here, and Dad started drinking, and then he died. At the time, it didn't bother me that much. I was too busy making money and chasing skirts. Then, in 61, I met my Brenda. And boy, did we have some times. That decade was the peak. Uh, but it all came crashing down in late 69. She was pregnant with our first when she died. Freak accident. She asleep at the wheel. At least that's what we think happened. Drove into oncoming traffic in the Central Valley, and a semi carrying tomatoes plowed into her. Uh, not his fault, mind you. She didn't have her lights on, and it was a dark night. George stopped and drank some more coffee. Again, oh, I'm sorry, Sylvanus said. Nah, don't be, George said. I spent too much of my life feeling sorry for myself. Went the same route as Dad. I started drinking, and worse, using cocaine. By the end of the 1970s, I'd spent a good portion of the money I'd made as a young man. But I didn't care. Why should I? This crappy world hadn't cared about me. So neither did I. Anyway, soon enough, none of it will matter. I'll be gone, and that'll be that. George, Sylvanus said, I can't change your life, of course. But I can offer you some hope. When you die, you won't be gone. No, you'll go to a wonderful place that feels like home, and you'll meet people. Maybe Dad, maybe Doris, probably Brenda. Yeah, I saw a TV report about what you say you saw after you were shot, George said. Uh, but how can you be sure that'll happen to me? Because it happens to everyone, Sylvanus said. The only thing that we lose are these old bodies. George smiled and said, well, I hope you were right. The conversation was lighter after that, and Lucas told Sylvanus on the way home that he felt the visit had done George good. Perhaps he can live out his last days excited about what comes next, Lucas said. I don't think he felt that way before he talked to him. I hope you're right, Sylvanus said. I have to admit, I feel sort of guilty for how my disappearance caused my family so much pain. I can understand that, Lucas said, but don't be too hard on yourself. After all, your motivation for joining the military was to help your family. Yeah, I suppose you're right, Lucas said. Lucas chuckled. What? Always the doubter, Lucas said and smiled. <laughs> Sorry. Don't be, Lucas said. So long as you remember that I'm right, Sylvanus laughed. 
You got it. The next morning, they set out early so they could enjoy a leisurely drive up the coast. Lucas said that when he'd lived in Southern California, he'd made the drive to San Francisco several times, and he always avoided using I-5, which ran straight through the boring, hot Central Valley, and opted for either the 101, or better, the 1, which wound along the coast from San Luis Obispo to Monterey, through one of Lucas's favorite spots on the planet, Big Sur. They were able to take the one, and they didn't regret it. It was Scarlett's first time on the road, and she loved it, especially the swaying, giant bird feathers that grew out of the hillside that bordered the road. She wanted to take one home with her, but they were too big to fit into their crowded car. Besides, Lucas told her, some things are easier to appreciate when we leave them in their natural environment, rather than trying to take them with us. After a late afternoon snack, it was time to bid Larry goodbye, for now. I've got an idea, Lucas told his good friend. What's that, partner? Larry said in an exaggerated drawl. You remember that high Sierra where I met Terry again? Lucas asked. You mean the one I was supposed to go to with you but had to miss because of my dad's funeral? Larry asked. How could I forget that? Yeah, that one, wise guy, Lucas said. Well, you also missed the one last summer that we all really enjoyed. Are you rubbing it in? Yes, Lucas said and laughed. Seriously, what I'm really trying to do is guilt you into accepting my invitation to tag along with us this year. Yeah, that would be a good time, Larry said. You could even park your tent next to ours, Lucas said, in the family camp. But I'm not family, Larry quiped. Well, Lucas said, you and Sylvanus could sleep together, and if you really wanted to make it fun, perhaps you could go as a gay couple. Larry laughed. That'd be amusing, all right. But man, I want to be like my buddy, Paul. What do you mean? I mean, I want to look across the field of the main stage as the sun is going down and see the woman of my dreams, Larry said, winking at Terry. Touche, Lucas said. In all seriousness, bro, it sounds like a great plan, Larry said. It's been too long since we've done a festival together. Absolutely, Lucas said. Well, ma'am, it's that time, Larry said. 4.20? Paul, Terry said sharply, hoping Scarlet wasn't paying attention. Well, it's always 4.20 in Sherry's world, Larry said. But I meant there's a plane to catch. All right, ma'am, Lucas said. Look, I know you hate it when I get sappy, but I can't let you go without... He wrapped Larry in a strong bear hug, saying thanks. The two friends didn't try to deny their hug and love for each other. Call me when you get back, Larry said. You got it. And with that, they left Larry on the doorstep of his Pacific Heights apartment, wishing that goodbyes didn't have to be so difficult, but consoling themselves with visions of everyone together again in a few months at a music festival, dancing and smiling in the summer sun. This time, when Lucas and Sylvanus drove through Redwood Country, they stopped and took time to appreciate the majestic forest. It made Sylvanus realize that now that he wasn't campaigning for president, He'd have more time for such activities, and this made him happy. They drove straight home from there and arrived only a day after Terry and Scarlett did. On Tuesday afternoon, Lucas found himself alone as Sylvanus and Scarlett had gone for a walk and Terry was at work, when he received a surprising phone call. Mr. Um, Mr. Lucas, came a nervous voice. Yes, Lucas said, that's me. Who's this? It's, um, Chris, the voice said. Chris Lee. Chris, Lucas asked, nice to hear from you. 
How have you been? Well, that's just it, Mr. Lucas, Lee said. I've never been better, but I'm afraid my mom and dad aren't going to see it that way. Uh-oh, Lucas thought. What's going on? Well, they don't know it, but I think maybe they do, Lee said. Know what? That I stopped taking my medication on Saturday, Lee said. And I've never felt better. Well, uh, that's good to hear, Chris, Lucas said. I knew you'd understand, Mr. Lucas, Lee said, relief in his voice. Well, Chris, I'm not a supporter of a lot of these drugs that are being used to modify behavior in children, as you probably remember, Lucas said. That's one of the reasons I called you. But, Lucas continued, if I am not mistaken, quitting them suddenly can lead to some problems, especially with your emotions. But that's just it, Mr. Lucas, Lee said. For the first time in over a year, today, I'm really feeling my emotions. I mean, really feeling them. It's great. Um, that's good, Lucas said. Chris, can I ask you, what made you stop taking the drugs? Sure, Lee said. You did. What? Well, okay, not just you, Lee exclaimed. You and your friend, Sylvanus Douglas. Slow down, Chris, Lucas said. This is the first time I've talked to you in over a year. So what do you mean we told you to stop taking your drugs? Well, no, Chris said, sounding a bit frustrated. You didn't tell me directly. Then how did I tell you, Lucas asked, and almost laughed as he thought. In an NDE? On Sylvanus's blog, Lee answered. Even though my parents told me to stop reading it, I didn't listen. And boy, am I glad I didn't. Because last Friday, you posted that story by the reporter that talked about how mixed up our country is about drugs. And? And it got me thinking, Lee said, about how crazy my situation was. I gave an aspirin to a boy with a headache, and I'm told I somehow broke some rule. So I have to write a paper saying I'm sorry, which I don't, of course, in which you were the only adult to understand why. And then I'm deemed to be troubled. And what's the solution? To put me on drugs! Crazy, isn't it? Here, Lucas had to be careful. But then he remembered that he was no longer Lee's teacher. He was merely a friend. So he said, Yeah, it is crazy. But Chris, you do have to be careful. I mean, you are planning to tell your parents you've quit, right? Not yet, he said. I want to quit for a while before I admit it. That way, hopefully they can see that I'm happier and okay without them. And more emotional, Lucas thought. The way I figure it, Lee said. My dad complains about how much the drugs cost, and from the start my mom has had doubts about them. And I'm sure they've both noticed that while the drugs make me more calm, they also make me less happy. Why do you think they've noticed, Lucas asked. You remember how I was, Mr. Lucas, Lee said. Yes, Chris, I do, Lucas said. Since I'm no longer teaching, I can tell you that you were one of my favorite students. Smart, curious, engaged, funny. The total package, at least before the drugs. And I had a lot of friends, too, Lee said. But not anymore. I think the kids think of me as just another smart, boring Asian nerd. Ouch, Lucas thought. Anyway, Mr. Lucas... I just wanted to call to thank you, Lee said, not only for being honest about drugs in the article last week, but for being a good teacher who stood by me when I got into trouble. You're welcome, Lucas said, and Chris, I'm still sticking by you. I have a feeling you might need to speak with someone again over the next several days and weeks. I'll be here. 
As you know, I'm no longer at the school. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that, Lee said. Yeah, me too, Lucas said. But such is life. Anyway, Chris, I wish you the best of luck through this. And, if I can offer some advice? Sure. This may not be an easy time for you, Chris, Lucas said. But I'm convinced that you're going to continue to be a great kid, no matter what happens, and that you'll be a great adult when you grow up. In the end, no matter how tough the situation may get, someday, sooner than you think, you'll likely look back on this and laugh. Thanks for that, Mr. Lucas, Lee said, and his voice sounded calmer than it had at the start of the call. You're welcome, Chris, Lucas said. Keep in touch, okay? Definitely, Chris said. That evening, the Lucas family, Paul, Terry, Scarlett, and Sylvanus, discussed their future. Everyone's perspective and concerns were taken into consideration, including Scarlett's. Eventually, it was decided that they would, for the short term, move closer to Seattle so that Sylvanus could use public transportation to get to his job working at John Walker's PR firm. Sylvanus had touched bases with Walker that afternoon, and Walker said that he'd been using temporary workers for the secretary's job, but the job was his if he still wanted it. The pay was more than they'd expected, so it seemed plausible that Terry and Sylvanus could be the primary breadwinners, while Lucas was the primary slacker. No, he wasn't really going to slack. Instead, Lucas was going to take some courses at a community college in teaching English as a second language, while looking for a new gig as a teacher. They knew he'd have some trouble getting a teaching job because he'd burned his bridges at Rainier View, and a teacher with only one job, a job he was fired from, on his record was at a great disadvantage. So Lucas convinced Terry that he wanted to try his hand at writing a book. About what? she asked. Us. You and me? she asked. Yes, but also Scarlet and the newest Lucas, Sylvanus, he said. But hasn't Rhodes already told the story in his articles? Terry asked. Some of it, Lucas said, and from his perspective, there's a lot he didn't, couldn't include. Even he admitted as much in one of his articles. I think it's a good idea if I can say so, Sylvanus said. Judging by the number of visitors to my blog, even after I announced I wouldn't be running for president anymore, I think there's a pretty solid number of people who might want to read it. Okay, Terry said. I know it's been a dream of yours to write a book, so give it a shot. Just keep in mind that you'll need to continue developing other options to bring home some bacon. Huh? Sylvanus said. It means make money, Scarlet explained. That's right, sweetheart, Lucas said. Scarlet smiled and suddenly turned serious. So I'll be going to a different school? Yes, honey, Terry said. Is that okay? Sure, I guess so, she said. I can make new friends, no problem. Everyone smiled, and no one doubted her. Scarlet was an independent little girl, but she was very likable, too. She'd be fine. It's hard to believe it's over, isn't it? Sylvanus asked. Not for me it isn't, Lucas said. Why not? Terry asked. Because it hardly feels like it ever started, Lucas said. I wonder if you just set some sort of record for shortest-lived presidential campaign. Sylvanus laughed. Measuring by time, yes, it was short, but it felt like eternity. Especially when I was dead, Lucas laughed. Yeah, that was a long night for all of us. You know, I never told you this, but when you were being rushed through the hospital doors from the ambulance, I honestly thought we'd lost you. Well, you almost did, you know, Sylvanus said, putting his hand on Lucas's shoulder. 
I was as close to leaving as possible. And, to be perfectly honest, when I was over there, I really did want to stay. It was so beautiful, and it felt like I'd come home at last. Why didn't you then? Lucas asked. You guys, he said and smiled, were here. Nobody said anything, though both Terry and Lucas had tears forming in their eyes. Soon, Scarlet followed suit. I wasn't ready to leave you, Sylvanus said. I felt like we still had a lot of chapters to write together. Well, Lucas said as he wiped the tears from his eyes with his shirt sleeve, we're glad you came back. Absolutely, Terry said. Positively, Scarlet said. And the four did something they do a lot in the remaining chapters of their book. They laughed. Epilogue. Finding their place in the world. May, 2008. What you reading? A tanned, sweating Paul Lucas in a fish t-shirt and khaki shorts asked as he entered the small room and sat down next to his old friend. The Common Dreams website, Sylvanus said, about Obama. What does it say? Well, I've read a few articles, Sylvanus said. His recent victories have all but sealed up the Democratic nomination for him. And as he's gone from long shot to top contender, the media has become more and more critical, focusing on Bogus issues, as Norman Solomon put it. You mean like the Reverend Jeremy Wright scandal? Lucas asked. Yeah, that's one, Sylvanus said. And while I think the story there is a non-issue, how it's being covered, and how Obama reacts to it, is pretty interesting. How so? Well, Wright accuses Obama of being a politician, and I think he is absolutely right, Sylvanus said. Pardon the pun, Lucas said, and Sylvanus smiled. I mean... As this one writer says, he would have been well within his rights to simply not answer questions about the non-issue. But the media wouldn't let it go, so Obama ended up distancing himself from Wright. Wright had every reason to be upset. Doesn't it make you glad you dropped out of the political game? Lucas asked, wiping sweat from his forehead. Of course, Lucas said. But I'm still hoping for the guy to live up to his promise of change we can believe in. I'd like to think we could return home to a decent country someday. Well, Lucas said, even though I do like our lives here, I agree with you. Still, I'd caution against getting your hopes up too high. You and I both know that the two parties are not all that different, that the big-time campaign donors come from many of the same sources, and that real, positive change is very unlikely to come from the U.S. political system the way it currently works. I know, Sylvanus said, sighing. At least if Obama won, we expats would no longer have to apologize for our embarrassing president. Yes, that would be nice, Lucas agreed. Now, I've got to get ready for school. Lucas looked at the eager, tanned faces of the children and said, Repeat after me. January? February? The energetic voices echoed his words, and it made Lucas happy to hear their enthusiasm. When he'd graduated from the University of Washington in 1994 with dreams of being a great journalist, after marrying Terry, of course, he'd never thought his path would lead him here, to a beach town in Thailand teaching English to the locals. But Terry's instincts had turned out to be solid, as his TESOL degree had come in handy, landing him a job. He'd started by helping tutor foreign kids in Washington, and then they'd all watched in horror as somehow Bush was able to hang on to the presidency for four more years. Lucas suspected the news reports about voting machine tampering in Ohio were accurate, and that again, 
Bush had managed to cheat his way into office. That said, like a lot of people, he hadn't been very excited by Senator John Kerry, and his campaign rhetoric and strategy made the Lucases feel like he wouldn't have been much of a president. The outcome, though, inspired Terry and Sylvanus to also get degrees in TESOL, and, in the fall of 2006, the family left America, seeking yet another adventure in their crazy lives. And it was Miller who'd set them up. Somehow, he had partial ownership of a chain of English schools in Southeast Asia and Japan. They'd considered Japan, but it'd been a dream of Lucas's and Terry's to live somewhere tropical near a beach for part of their life, so they chose Thailand. It had also been a dream of Lucas's to write and publish a book, and he'd succeeded. Their story had been published by a small independent publisher in Central California, but by the time it reached the market, much of the interest in Sylvanus's story had gone seriously under the surface. For his part, Sylvanus had fit in well at the PR firm, picking up his tasks quickly, and in his spare time, he continued to write his blog and occasionally give public speeches. But most importantly, he began to spend regular time, every day, in nature. That had been easier, or at least more pleasant, in tropical Thailand than in soggy Washington, as Sylvanus had turned into something of a beach bum. Still, something in the back of Lucas's and Sylvanus's mind was starting to itch at them that it would soon be time to go back to America, to get back into the thick of things, as it were. But not yet. No, for the time being, they were content to teach English and enjoy the tropical pleasures of Thailand, far away from the artificial hologram that was American life. October, November, December. The young boy sometimes read the website late into the night after his parents had gone to bed. It was his inspiration. No matter that his father urged him to give up his dream and instead to go to a business school like he had. No matter that his mother was too timid to disagree with her husband. No matter. He didn't want that life. He didn't want to be just another cog in the machine. He didn't want to be part of the problem, or, if not exactly the problem, he didn't want to not be working on a solution. His daily walks into the fields around his suburban Indiana house told him as much. When he turned everything off and just listened to the world around him, the voice was clear. Join us. Help us. Mr. McMullen, his science teacher at the high school, agreed with the voices, though the boy never told his teacher about them. No, what his teacher agreed with was his students' concern about the continued destruction of nature, so he'd written a letter of recommendation for him to go to Northwestern University in Chicago to pursue a degree in environmental studies or perhaps environmental law. Sometimes the boy liked to argue with his dad, tell his dad why he was wrong, but usually he saved it, for his dad was not going to be convinced by mere words. Some people needed more. What the young man needed, though, was inspiration and courage, and he got both from Sylvanus Douglas's blog and from his story. For he'd seen how Sylvanus hadn't given in, hadn't sacrificed his integrity or his vision. Sure, he'd stepped out of the spotlight, but the tree man continued to blog to raise money for environmental causes and, most of all, to inspire. So as the boy turned off his computer that night, he took the application for the business school that he'd only partially filled out and stuffed it into his backpack to be thrown away at a garbage can on the way to school where his dad couldn't find it. And he took the application for Northwestern and carefully folded it, and put it in its envelope, sealing it and applying a stamp. He would mail it first thing in the morning. He'd follow his dream. And someday, 
He thanked Sylvanus Douglas in person for giving him the courage to do so. Someday. The End This has been The Teacher and the Tree Man, a novel by Brian Winchell, read by Brian Winchell. Thanks for listening. This tale will continue, so be sure to keep up with me, er, Brian, via Twitter, Facebook, my Medium blog, and my future podcast. Also, sometime down the road, I'll have a personal website. Now, I'd like to take the chance to read the acknowledgments at the end of the book. Acknowledgments. First of all, I want to thank you, the listener. If you've made it this far and are still listening, you are a trooper in the best sense of the word. Thanks. I do hope that this is not the end of us, though, that you'll reach out to me, share what you are up to, what you are creating, where you are living, whatever. One of the sub-themes of this book is community and lack of it. And it's my strong intuition and feeling that the best way forward for humanity is founded on community. Second, I want to thank my awesome, awesome parents, Leonard and Leslie Winchell slash Fitzgerald. I added that last part because why do we still get rid of the maiden name at marriage? I want to thank them for the usual, you know, um, without them meeting and choosing to tie the knot and go the distance. No me. <laughs> but more than that, so much more. Thanks for all the guidance, all the chats, all the support. Couldn't have done it without you. Dad, thanks for all the hard editing from as early as I can remember. And of course, Dad, thanks for taking the time to edit this monster of a book. No worries, future books will be shorter. And how can I forget my brother Lance? All my life, he's been around, and he often shared stories, books, movies, music, and TV shows I should get hip to. Just as with my parents, no me without him. In a different way, folks. Oh, and Lance... That older brother in chapter 6 way back in book 1 is not you. Well, maybe just a little. But the you from a long time ago. Brothers fight. So be it. There are others in my life, but before I go on, I'd like to thank nature itself. It may seem a bit hokey, and that's okay. I admittedly hug trees and speak to animals when I pass him on my bike. I sense that all things are alive and conscious of intention. So I'd like to reach out to nature and treat it with respect and kindness. This book never would have happened without me spending a lot of time in nature, especially the forests of my native Pacific Northwest, throughout my life. And it was only by visiting my secret spot in Point Defiance Park that this book really took form in my head. Nature is what we are, folks. There is no division between human and nature. Only when we falsely perceive that is true does it become a part of our, quote, reality. By reconnecting to nature, we can rediscover our true selves and be happier, kinder people. At least that has been my experience. I want to thank my friend and writing partner slash competitor, haha, since junior high, Daniel Cozart. Not only did he help a lot with this book by taking the time to read it and comment about it, he gave me motivation to finish mine when he published his first novel, the quirky, fun, thoughtful, cross-USA novel, Indian Summer. It's a great book, folks. I read it twice. Also, two friends on the Pacific in beautiful Central California, Eileen and Dave Workman. I often run into cynicism in our culture about strange fans, such as social media like Facebook. 
back when I first started using the internet to socialize in the late 1990s. I told myself I'd use it to express my better nature, to express gratitude, and help people, and make connections with others of like minds. For me, living overseas in Japan away from native speakers of English for weeks at a time, social media has been a godsend, just as far as having people to communicate naturally with. But more than that, it has helped me grow as a person, to get to know some people. Eileen Workman is definitely one of those people. I've gotten to know her from her frequent, thought-provoking, soul-inspiring Facebook page over the past several years, and we developed a solid relationship. Anyway, long story short, I was struggling to create my cover when Eileen offered the services of her husband, Dave, a cover designer, for free. How could I pass up such a deal? And boy, did Dave come through. We had a few glitches along the way, but such has been the bumpy process of birthing this book into the world. Anyway, thanks you two. One of these days, we shall meet in person. Also helping with the cover, people who gave me feedback on my Facebook page when I posted options were folks like Darren Dreda, Stacy Casino, James Dennis Kelly, George Thomas Gale, Amy Allen Hart, Michael Giorgi, Ursula Nordhorn, Kathy Junisiak, Thomas Stubbs, John Schopert, Jeremy Woodard, and Brent Thomas. Thanks all so much. If I didn't name you but you helped, thanks so much. It is a goal of mine to do more collaborative projects. Let's write a book together or something, folks. Some people I'd like to thank are people who inspired characters or who even attended scenes that were very similar to scenes from this book. People like Daniel Jones and Richard Osuna come to mind. There are others, and I'm sure you know who you are. Last, there are many writers and thinkers who helped shape this novel, too many to name. The first is probably the psychonaut, Terence McKenna, who died on April 3rd, 2000, but whose ideas, including the role psychedelics may have played in human evolution, the patterns of history, and the meaning of psychedelics, contributed a lot to my thinking about such issues. In addition, the author Timothy Egan for his The Good Rain and The Worst Hard Time the first which proved invaluable in helping me reestablish my love for my native Pacific Northwest, as well as my love of a well-written, educational nonfiction book, and the latter for helping me develop Sylvanus slash Luke's background in Dust Bowl-era Oklahoma. Oh, and the music I listened to. Too many great bands to count. Bands like Fish and the Grateful Dead, emotional rock bands like the Smashing Pumpkins, inspiring punky pop like The Clash, and, to get me to the end, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Man, I love music. Many more things to thank, for being grateful is like being tapped into the universe. But for now, I'll stop so I can get this book out into the world. About the author. Brian Winchell is a... Wait, stop. You know, I always had issues with people who talk about themselves in the third person... So, I'm going to be honest and admit it. Brian Winchell is the body slash being who is writing these words, so he, I, is, am going to use the first person. Fair enough? I am a father, an English teacher, and a writer, as well as a fun-loving, wacky, all-around good chap. We and I'm not getting into trouble, that is. I currently live in Takasaki, Japan, but I hail from the U.S. West Coast, growing up in the lovely state of Washington, Tacoma to be precise, and going to college in Southern California in the 1990s. I have been writing since I first picked up a pen at the age of three. Okay, I made that up. As long as I can remember, all right. 
I went to college at the University of Southern California to chase my dream of being either a sports or political journalist, but I ended up chasing dreams of a different sort. I briefly worked at an alt-weekly in Tacoma in late 1999 and 2000, but gave up journalism that fall and have focused my writing on fiction, with occasional dabbles in oddball poetry to keep the creative juices flowing. The novel, The Teacher and a Tree Man, was started in the spring of 2000 in an old-growth forest in Point Defiance Park, one of the largest municipal parks in the U.S., look it up, and worked on, and off, for the next 15 years. It truly was a labor of love, as I wrote it with two intentions. One, enjoy it. Two, finish it. About one, I wanted to write something about things I cared about, but do it in a way that I felt was both entertaining and hopefully enlightening. I look at the world through the lens of both and, and see the possibilities in things, in spite of our cynical times. Yet The Teacher and the Tree Man is written in a very dark period of U.S. and world history, the fall of 2000, it starts just before 9-11, through the spring of 2003 with the start of the Iraq War. As such, this book is me wrestling with cynicism slash optimism. Ultimately, I think we need to stay optimistic in spite of the things we see happening in the world out there. One way to do this, as the book suggests, is to get out into nature where you can tune into nature, as well as your own inner nature. It is my intuition that nature is, in a sense, speaking to us when we do this, and that is the, how the idea for this book was born. If more of us can do this, I do believe we can at least hold back the march of cynical progress, or perhaps liven up that progress with some sprinkles of hope and optimism. So yes, in a way, this is a message book, but I fear calling it that, for I think it is, above all else, an entertaining tale, with some fun, quirky characters and a unique plot. I believe the best way to go deep into things is to keep a light heart about it, so I hope that when you have finished this book, you'll not only have learned something, but you'll have enjoyed the ride.